Go ahead and keep your head, head bowed for a minute. Um, I want to try to focus us this morning um, on the cross. As, uh, as Dan and the, and the rest of the people let us in worship, um, so appropriate the last song that we sang. Um, and if you will continue to, to focus with me, uh, I want to paint a picture for you all, uh, for myself, to get us in the, uh, the mode of what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the words of, that Christ spoke from the cross. We're going to look at them briefly. There's a, a lot to, to talk about. But what I want to do before we, we go there is I want to, to give you guys a picture of what Christ did um, on the cross. To see the scene, to set the, set the stage. For the words that uh, that he said. So think about these things with me. Meditate upon them as we uh, as we begin this morning. Will you see uh, Christ bringing up his cross, carrying the cross on his back? Uh, we see Simon take that cross from him. We see the soldiers. Hammering in the nails that we hear about into his wrists and in his feet, sticking them up on the cross. We see the people there mocking and laughing at him, spitting on him. We see the soldiers gambling for his clothes. Picture the religious leader standing off in the back of the crowd, sneering at him, making fun of him, mocking him. See the two criminals that were crucified along with Christ yelling at him, yelling abuse to that. We picture Mary and John, the Apostle John, standing by the cross weeping for him. We see the sky turn black as Christ receives the world's sin. See the sponge of vinegar offered to him. And most importantly, see the face of our Savior. The face filled with compassion. And the face filled with love. The face filled with forgiveness and full of anguish. And a face full of victory. Christ spoke seven words from the cross. We're going to look at the seven this morning. But before we do that, let's pray. Father God, it's so humbling for me to, uh, to consider the cross that you died upon. It's so humbling to know that, that you did that voluntarily. You did that because you loved your Father. Because you loved us. Lord, what, what an amazing thought that we can even study the cross. We can even picture what you did for us there. We can even comprehend a small amount of the love that was poured out 
that day, those six hours. Lord, we pray this morning that you'll guide us to a deeper understanding of the cross, a deeper understanding of why you hung there for us, why you uh, took all the sin upon yourself, why you risked risk allowing God to turn his back on you, and why, um, why you did that marvelous thing for us. Lord, we pray that this morning we can be focused and we can be attentive, we can be alert, Lord. And it can spur within us a desire to study this, a desire to know more about the cross, to cherish the cross more, to cherish the work that you did there. And pray this week, as burdens can't get up in the coming days, Lord, that you'll just give them power to speak through your Holy Spirit. And I pray the same prayer for myself this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. I want to read something to you um, that's not going to be found in your Bibles. What I did was, as I began to study this, uh, it was real neat for me to uh, to go to the different narratives, to go to Luke, to go to John, to go to Matthew, and those are the three passages that we're going to be in this morning. But something was kind of, I kind of realized that it was it was hard for me as I, I read the, the account of the crucifixion of Luke. And um, there would be a few words of, of Christ. And I would read the account of John, and there would be a few words of Christ. And I'd read the account of Matthew, and there would be one word of Christ. And I realized that it's hard to get the whole picture of the cross, the whole picture of the words that Christ said on the cross. It was hard for me. And what I thought would be helpful, and uh, I just compiled, I went to the computer lab onto Lagos Bible and I compiled a little narrative that I want to read to you this morning. And I went through the different accounts and I gathered all um, the accounts and put them on one page. And I'm just going to read that to you this morning so you can just listen for a minute. And then we're going to get into the text. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. This is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanging there, was hurling abuses at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our debts. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But they were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Now from the sixth hour, 
from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, or that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having breathed this, or having said this, he breathed his last. This is the account from start to finish of Christ on the cross. The first word, though, that I want to take you to this morning is found in Luke. So why don't you open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke 23. And you're going to want to keep your finger there because we're going to be coming back to it at the end. Luke 23 and verse 34, we see these words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Christ is here, is praying for forgiveness for the people around him. You see, a little bit of context. Christ has just been put on the cross. There are two criminals there with him. One of the criminals is, is mocking him, and the other one's asking for forgiveness. Um, you've seen the, the, stage, the stage has been set, as we said in the beginning. There's people there casting lots for his clothes, and people mocking him, mocking him, spitting upon him. The rulers are sneering at him, and they're, they're teasing him. Um, the Roman soldiers have just put him up on the cross. Uh, he has he has drugged the cross up to Calvary. Now he's hanging up on the cross, and all this is happening within a few moments. And Christ says these incredible, incredible words: "Father, forgive them, because they know not what they are doing." The idea of forgiveness is to sin for, to admit, to put away. Christ is saying, "Take their sins away from them. Get rid of them." Who's he saying this to? I, I began to study this and look at this and I thought, well maybe he's saying it to, uh, to the criminals. Maybe he's saying it to the criminals on the cross. Father, forgive them so they don't know what they're doing. Maybe he's saying it, I thought, man, well, no, probably not. Because the next word that we're going to look at in the same context is talking specifically to that. So maybe he's talking to all of us, to the whole world. Maybe he's saying, Father, forgive all of them so they don't know what they're doing. And I thought, well... <coughs> Probably not that either. So I, I figured that, and, and as I studied this a little bit, I realized that what Christ is saying, Father, forgive them, is He's talking about the people there present at the crucifixion. The people that had just mocked Him. People that are continuing to mock Him. People that nailed Him up to the cross. People that whipped Him. People that put the kind of thorns on His head. People that spit on Him. People that cast lots for His clothes. Those are the people that Christ is saying forgive them so they know not what they're doing. I mean, that, that right there, I mean, we could just say amen and I could sit down and that would be the amazing thing about Christ. Because the people that are all around him that have just abused him more than he had ever been abused and more than any of us will ever be abused, and he's saying, Father, forgive them so they know not what they're doing. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing to me. Um, we also know that Christ couldn't ask God to forgive people, um, forgive these people that aren't seeking forgiveness. So we're, we kind of realize that the idea is that he's asking God to, to take his wrath away from these people for a time, for a while. 
Um, and we see that because um, Jerusalem prospers for the next approximately 40 years. It's a prosperous time and then it falls and we think that that's why Christ said this. I want to flip over to Matthew 6 to uh, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount and uh, and Christ, Christ uh, what we come to know as the Lord's Prayer. And in verse 12 of the Lord's Prayer, it says this, And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Christ here is, is acting out what he told the apostles to pray. And that's, that um, also is, is a neat deal. That Christ would, that Christ would, would act out. Christ would, in fact, do what he told us to do. Well, that's just anything of that that we know about our Savior. So the question is here, then, if you were to think about this passage, have you have you ever um, have been in a position where you said you were standing before the cross of Christ, looking at the cross of Christ, thinking about the things that Christ did on the cross, and have you ever mocked the cross? Have you ever mocked Christ? Have you ever looked at him? And looked at the work that he done, did, and then maybe abused it, maybe turned your back on it, maybe walked away from it. Do you think that you have ever been in need of the prayer that Christ prayed that day, Father, forgive them, so they know not what they're doing? Do you think you ever have done anything that, uh, that needed that prayer, Christ? I have. The first word then, Christ's prayer for forgiveness. If you look down, a few verses to verse 43, we're going to see the second word, which is Christ's offering of salvation, Christ's gift of salvation. If you're taking notes, we saw that Christ brought forgiveness, now we see Christ's gift of salvation in verse 43 of Luke 23. It says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now he's talking about the criminal on the cross. There are two criminals. Um, one is hostile and one is seeking forgiveness. And we see in this passage that you receive the forgiveness. Um, the word paradise means has an idea of an Eden, an idea of a place of future happiness, a place where spirits of believers go immediately after death, which is interesting, immediately after death. We're going to talk about it in a minute. This is a realization of God's saving grace through Christ. The realization that Christ had a gift to offer and it can be received immediately. You turn with me real quick over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, it says in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 3, it says this, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in all the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly, excuse me, the thief asked something from Christ. He received abundantly more than he asked for, is the point. But he asked for a blessing in the future. He said, he said, um, in verse uh, 42, he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. He asked 
uh, for a blessing in the future. And what does Christ give him? He gives him a promise for today. And truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The thief asks for a blessing and he gets this great promise, this great um, gift of salvation today. He has to be remembered. The criminal has to remember me. And Christ gives, gives him total acceptance into his presence in that moment. The criminal asked to be with him in his kingdom. And he got to go with him to paradise immediately. I thought that was, it was just me. Just me. This is the greatest miracle that Christ performed on the cross. Forgiveness. Forgiveness immediately of the sins. So this is Christ's gift of salvation. Um, for the next word, the third word, turn over to John. Keep your finger in Luke there. Turn over to John. John 19. Turn over to John 19 to see the third word in the chain here. John 19, verse 26. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that day, that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. This is a, a neat picture that Christ paints of his compassion. Christ's model for compassion is the third point and the third word. Christ sees there, standing by the cross, uh, his mother Mary, along with a few other women, and he sees an apostle whom he loved, which we come to know as the apostle John, standing by the cross. And he joins them in a special unique relationship and an act of compassion in this moment. Um, Christ here, like we said, is modeling compassion follow compassion that we could we could learn from. He sees um, he sees his mother there. And I think it's significant if you look at the text real quick that he says that it says he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He doesn't say mother, he doesn't say Mary. He says woman. And I thought, well that's kinda odd. I said, well, why why maybe it's some sort of something in the Greek or some language thing or something like that. And as I studied it, the reason why he used the word mother, or excuse me, the reason why he used the word woman and not the word mother was because Christ wanted to uh, establish that relationship of Lord, Lordship to, to uh, one of his own, more than he wanted to establish the relationship of son to mother. He wanted to, in other words, um, continue to acknowledge that he was Lord. He was on the cross offering the gift of salvation to a people that needed it instead of a son offering compassion to a mother. I think we can learn from that, but I don't think that's the, uh, the point. Um, Christ puts Mary under John's care. It's a special, unique kind of relationship. The word there, um, son, has the idea of kinship, the idea of uh, inviting somebody into your family. Um, the idea of adoption, in other words. So from this day forward, it says in verse uh, 27, it says from this day forward, John took Mary into his own household. In other words, took her under his wing, took her under her protection. Um, and this is the relationship that Jesus initiates there. And like I said, it's important to remember that, that we see here a Savior's concern for one of his own more than we see a son's concern for his mother. How do you think Christ felt at this moment? 
seeing, seeing, looking around, seeing all the people that um, were persecuting him. And I, I could imagine Christ and his humanity probably was looking around for, for some friends. He's probably looking around for some of the apostles that he spent three years pouring his life into. He's probably looking around for some people that he cared about and people that he loved. And all the apostles had deserted them. From what we understand, we don't have any account in the text except for this, except for John, was the only apostle that was there at the cross. How do you think he? How do you think that made Christ feel? It, it seems like it would make him feel a little bit upset, maybe a little bit sad, a little bit frustrated even, um, in his humanity. But Christ was the perfect model of compassion, and we see that in this in this verse. Now, I want a, a little side note here before we go on to the to the fourth word. We've seen three words here, uh, three phrases, we call them words or more phrases here, that Christ uh, said to people, and they all had to do with, with relationships. The first one was with the people that were at the cross. The second one was specifically with the criminal on the cross. The third one was with his mother with John. We all three deal with relationships, the first three words. And then in the text, a very interesting thing happens. It says, um, in, the, in the narrative that I read, it says that darkness fell upon the land, and I think it says that in Luke. It says darkness fell upon the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Now what happened, what do you think happened during those three hours of darkness? We have no account of it in scripture at all. We know nothing about what happened in those three hours. We think probably that this was the time that uh, that Christ was receiving the full penalty for the sins of the world. We think that this is a time that God, in fact, turned His back on His Son, the Son that He had never turned His back on, the Son that He had always been in the presence of. This is the time where, where God, the Father, turned His back on His Son, and Christ received the full penalty of the world's sin. Turn to Matthew 27. And for the fourth word, um, is Christ tried anguish. Christ tried anguish. And we see in verse 46 of chapter 27, Matthew says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachim, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is probably the hardest of the seven words to understand. Probably the, the most intriguing to me that at this point, Christ has been on the cross for uh, approximately three to six hours, somewhere in there. We know that he spent uh, probably about three hours on the cross during the first three words. Um, we don't know exactly how long. And we know for a fact that he spent, uh, in verse 45 it says, darkness fell, darkness now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the the ninth hour. So we know there's three hours there, nothing of darkness. So we know that Christ has been on the cross for probably close to six hours at this point. Um, and he cries out to God for the second time. The first time, if you remember, was a prayer for forgiveness. This time he cries out to God for anguish because of the anguish that he's feeling at this moment. And the words, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabakini, that's the original language of Hebrew. In Mark, the same, we see the same passage, and Mark quotes it in Aramaic. So we know that Christ was at least trilingual. Which is an interesting deal. Um, it says, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? The word forsaken is real, really interesting and really important. 
the idea behind the word forsaken is to mean leave behind, leave behind some place or to desert. So what is Christ saying? He's saying, God, why have you left me behind? Why have you deserted me? Is, is what Christ is, is saying. Christ here is in anguish because at this moment he is paying the debt for the world's sin, like he said. And uh, it's real neat that Christ's prayer can be uh, compared to the, the prayer that he had in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you flip back a couple pages to uh, chapter uh, 20, uh, is that in here? Chapter 26, chapter right before, verse 36. We have the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember, he goes there to pray. And he takes the three apostles with him and they fall asleep in the whole thing. And if you look down in, uh, in verse 42, we say this. Actually, we see it in verse 39 and verse 42. It says, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. In verse 39, we read that. It says, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Christ, at that point, is praying, if there's any other way, God, in other words, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, if there's any other way that I don't have to die on the cross, and I don't have to receive the penalty of the world's sins, if there's any way that you don't have to turn your back on me, let, let that happen. But if there's no other way, this is the only way, the only way that, that your will can be done is if I suffer this cup, or drink this cup, Suffer the penalty of the cross, then let your will be done. And he's answering this prayer here. When he's saying, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? It's interesting to note that he's now drinking the cup that he prayed that would pass from him. He's drinking the cup that he prayed would pass from him. That's amazing. This also quotes Psalm 22.1. Don't turn there, I want to read it real quick. Psalm 22.1 says, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Christ here is quoting the psalm. But if you notice in the psalm, if he keeps going and you read the psalm later, it's not only a psalm of anguish as it begins with, but it's a psalm of great praise. Psalm of great praise. So we, we kind of get the idea that Christ is not only in, or Christ in his anguish, he's also using that to praise his God. I think that's pretty powerful. God here is forsaking Christ's human nature. Not in any way has God ever stopped loving Christ or has Christ ever rejected His Father. We can't, you can't say that and be true to Scripture. You can't say that and be true to your relationship with Christ. If you say that any time God rejected Christ in the, in the, um, or stopped loving Christ and Christ ever rejected the Father, then you're denying the root of Christianity. You can't do that. What it is saying is that God turned his back on Christ's human nature because at that moment Christ would see all the world's sin upon his shoulders. And that's the point. A quick illustration. Let me read this. A child is very sick. He's too young to understand why he has to be taken to the hospital. While there, he may have to be taken into the intensive care unit where his parents cannot always be with him. His parents love him as much as ever, but there may be moments when the child misses, misses the presence of his parents so much that he experiences profound anguish. So in other words, there may be moments where this child is taken away from the presence of his, father, the presence of his parents 
maybe for the first time ever. And this, this kid is probably a little bit nervous, and a little bit scared, a little bit upset. Why? Why do I gotta take away from the presence of my parents? That doesn't mean that the parents quit loving him. That means that doesn't mean that the son quits loving his parents. It just means that they're separated for a time. I think that's a a way to understand this. Christ is separated from the presence of God for a moment. Not that. Um, and, a, and a neat point um, is that if there's any other way, like we said before, if there's any other way that, that the work of God could have been accomplished, that the will of God could have been accomplished, then it would have, would have happened the other way. I don't think God would have turned Christ over to his tormentors if there's any other way. But Christ is separated from the presence of God for a moment. Not that he ever stopped loving Christ, not that our God, God ever stopped loving Christ, and Christ ever stopped loving God, but they were separated for a moment. Um, and, a, and a neat point uh, is that if there's any other way, like we said before, there's any other way that, that the work of God could have been accomplished, that the will of God could have been accomplished, then it would have would have happened the other way. I don't think God would have turned Christ over to his tormentors if there's any other way, but as we're going to see in, in the next couple of words, that there was no other way. And praise the Lord because there's no other way because of the work that Christ did for us. Um, one last note here before we go on to the, the fifth word is that this is the only time that you ever hear Christ refer to, that Christ does not refer to God as His Father. The only time that Christ does not refer to God as His Father when He says, My God, My God. Instead of Father, because it was truly God had truly turned his back on him at that moment. <coughs> so let's let's turn over now back to John. We're going to go to the fifth point. So the fourth fourth one was Christ's side. Then let's turn back to John. Excuse me, let's Turn back over to John, and we're going to see the fifth word. The fifth word, which is suffering. And Christ fulfilling the scripture kind of wrapped up all into one. And we see in verse 28, it says, And after this, knowing that all things have already been accomplished, in order that the scripture may be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. Christ had received, at this point, the penalty for the world's sins. He had gone through... Like we said, six hours of the cross. You, we're not going to take time to talk about what the cross is like. You've heard sermons on that around Easter time. Your pastor has talked about all the anguish of the cross and how it's a brutal death and you had to, and you couldn't breathe and, and all the things that go along with the cross and loss of blood and all these things. And um, but at this point, Christ is very, very, very human, very, very, very human. And we see this by the fact that he says, "I am thirsty." We have no reason. To believe that Christ wasn't thirsty at this point, you know? I mean, he, he had been on the cross for six hours. Um, and if you remember in the beginning, he offered him something to drink kind of out of jest. And he said, no, I don't want it. And now we have no reason to believe that Christ isn't actually thirsty here in reality. And they offer him, they offer him something to drink. Now, um, I looked this up. And uh, this morning, I was talking to a guy. And we were kind of um, looking at this and kind of joking a little bit. If you look, If we look this up... The word where it says, I am thirsty. If you look at it, I think it's in the King James Version, it says, to thirst. And that's really what it means. It doesn't mean anything beyond just, I thirst. And that's what Christ is saying. But for, a little bit further than that, 
If I want to read something in the psalm, once again, in Psalm 69:21, it says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So we know that there is an element of Christ fulfilling Scripture at this point. We know that there is an element of Christ fulfilling Scripture. So then we see the two reasons why Christ asked for something to drink. One was to fulfill the Scripture. He was true to Scripture until the point of His death, which is another thing we can learn from Him. And the second thing is, because He was thirsty, is why He asked for something to drink. And this shows the humanity of Christ. You know, when you go, when you, like, they invite over to somebody's house for dinner. Um, and, and you go, and, and when you get there, what normally, um, they'll offer you something to drink. You know, maybe you, you come in and, you know, and kind of it's a polite thing in our culture to kind of offer you something to drink. Now, if you accept that drink, you, you're doing it for, for two reasons, most likely. You're checking that drink for two reasons. One, because maybe you're expected to because of our culture. One, because you want to fulfill that, the offer of that person. And the second thing is because probably you're, you are thirsty, you know? And that's the same idea that Christ did. He fulfilled scripture and because he was thirsty. And that was the fifth word. Um, the sixth word is just down one, two verses. In verse 29, we see that he, uh, he did receive the, uh, the sponge filled with sour wine. And in verse 30 there, we see the sixth word that he says. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Those three famous words. These are probably the three words that most of us think about when we think about Christ on the cross and what Christ did on the cross. Says, it is finished. What does finished mean? It means to end, complete, discharge of debt. And uh, also, the word finished is in the perfect tense in the Greek. And perfect tense doesn't translate very well over to the English, but what it is, is it means that some act, some work, has been completed someplace in the past. Someplace in the past, the work has been completed, but the effects are felt into the future. And when Christ says it is finished, he says the work right now is done, completed, it's over. But the work certainly is felt in the future. A couple weeks ago, I was at Disneyland, and, uh, and there's a pretty special girl there with me, and uh, we had the opportunity to get engaged, to be married. And uh, it, was, it, was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty exciting moment, a pretty exciting moment that happened in the past. Right? It happened somewhere over here a few weeks ago at Disneyland. And, um, I said, will you marry me? She said, yeah. And, and so we were engaged, right? But that work or that occurrence was certainly going to be felt uh, a long time in the future, Lord willing. I know that we have this little uh, computer program of planning our wedding that... Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, the perfect tense then is something work has been uh, completed in the past, but it's developed in the future. And that's what Christ said in his finished. Christ's work on the cross and on this earth has totally been completed, totally been done. Entire work of redemption has been fulfilled and brought to completion. The idea of redemption is deliverance, the deliverance by payment of a price. Salvation from sin, death, and the wrath of God by Christ's sacrifice. That's what Christ did on the cross. And that work that he did is finished. He established faith. Nothing more needed to be done. 
everything that needed to be done for our salvation had been completed at that at that moment, by that moment, say, and it is finished. Um, last night I had a privilege of going to hear a couple of brothers preach, and uh, Dustin Maytan was one of those guys who preached, and he had this great uh, little illustration that I kind of swiped, and I'm going to kind of. So if I if I say it wrong, you gotta like say something because it was so cool. But there was this he read this story out of some book, and it was about this girl who uh, let me see yeah it was about this girl who needed this blood transfusion. About <laughs> this girl who needed a blood transfusion. So she's in the hospital and uh, and she's laying there on the bed, kind of sick and everything. I don't know the whole deal. And uh, they're searching around for somebody to, to give her blood, guys, her blood type. <coughs> and looking around everywhere to find somebody who has the same blood type. And they find her little brother. I guess he's pretty young. And he's the only one they can find that has his blood type. And they're kind of hesitant to ask this boy uh, if, he will, if he will give his blood up for his sister. Because I mean, he may not understand. He might be a little bit scared. So finally they say, well, we, we need this blood. And he's the only one we can find. So they go, okay, they ask the boy, and they say, they, they went up to him and said, will you um, donate your blood for your sister? She needs it, or she can be very sick, she can die, kind of adding my own. And, uh, and, and the doctor goes, and the boy says, without even blinking the blood out of your says, yes, yes, I'll donate my blood for the, for the girl, for my sister. And uh, so they, they, they bring him in, they sit him down in the bed next to his sister, and they take out, begin to take out the blood with the IV, and he kind of goes to sleep or whatever. And then he comes, and after they get the blood out, they get the pint, they just took a pint of blood out to get it out. They come, and they wake the boy up, and they say, say okay, it's done. It's done. We're taking the blood out. And the boy turns to the doctor, and he says, says, Doctor, when do I die? When do I die? And the doctor was like, Obviously, the, the boy didn't understand. He thought because they take a blood out of him, he was not going to die. He didn't understand that, that it would kind of regenerate itself. The doctor explained that to him, that he wasn't going to die. He said, no, you're not going to die. You're going to be fine. And, uh, and the doctor, kind of taken back by it, kind of asked the boy, he said, he said, if you thought you were going to die because we took a blood out, why did you, why did you offer to give your blood to us? Well, because it was my sister. Because I love them. Um, I think that, that describes so perfectly what Christ did when he said it is finished. He didn't have to do it, he didn't have to die or suffer that way. Or maybe he did because of his God's will. But you know that he did it um, voluntarily. And he did it confidently because he knew it was the Father's perfect will. Because he prayed in the garden, he said, If there's any other way, Lord, let it pass. Obviously, there's no other way because the Lord led him to that point and said he did it voluntarily and he did it confidently. So it is finished. It's the sixth word. If you need to stop there, we have one more. Turn back over to Luke 23 for the last word. And we see Christ's contentment of his spirit. Now that all the work has been done, Christ has seen all the sin of the world. He had finished his work. He, he had done everything he needed to do for the for the Lord's will. And he comes back to this point and uh, he cries out to God for the third time. Um, 
The first time was the forgiveness of people. The second time was out of anguish. And now he cries out again, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The word commit is real beautiful. It's that it means to deposit as a trust for protection. A deposit as a trust for protection. So Christ is committing his spirit unto the Father. That's um, sort of a said, here you go, Lord. Here you go, Father. You notice that he used the word Father. From the first word into the last word, Christ never rejects the Father. And that's beautiful. In Psalm 31, 5, I'm going to read this for you. Psalm 31, 5, it says, Into thy hand I commit my spirit, that was ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Into thy hand I commit my spirit, that was ransomed me. Oh Lord, God of truth. I want, to, I want to bring up three things real quick about this psalm. And this is the, the psalm that Christ is quoting from the cross. You notice that he retains uh, the phrase, I commit my spirit. This is significant because it indicates the only death Christ is able to die. To satisfy the justice of the Father and to save men. It had to be a voluntary sacrifice. I commit my spirit. There's a voluntary sacrifice to Christ. That's important. Equally important is the idea that he adds in the word in the psalm. It says, into thy hand I commit my spirit. And in the gospel it says, Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. He adds the word Father. Christ always clings to his Father from the first word until the last. The last word. And that's important. And then we see that he omits the last phrase from the psalm. Thou hast ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Christ omits that. Because that was, it says, Thou hast ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. In this case, Christ, the sinless one, it wasn't possible or even necessary that he had this redemption brought to himself. Because he didn't need it because he was sinless. So he admits that completely. So now that we see, we come to the end. Christ's work was completely voluntary, completely completed. And with that in mind, he died. The seven words that Christ spoke from the cross, quickly. We didn't have much time this morning, I'm already over. But it's important to remember these things. Remember the things that Christ did for us to glorify His Father and to save us. Um, every word that Christ spoke was significant. Every word was perfect. Do you believe that? Every word was perfect. Christ came with a specific point in mind. He came to the world to die on the cross to glorify the Father. And He did that in a very perfect way very complete, very voluntary way. And at, I would just challenge you guys. I know I don't have a lot of time right now. Um, but I would challenge you guys. If you're, if you're all, if I all spark an interest in you, if I spark some sort of desire way down in you, that when you think of the cross, you're a little bit confused, you're a little bit um, wondering why Christ did those things. If you will take the time to just Go to Scripture and look at these things that Christ did. Look at them step by step. If you have to compile this narrative that I did, so you can get the whole picture. Um, but as you look at the work that Christ done across, the, the work that He did that day, in that hour, and it's finished that day, but the work that is felt, everything, right? Oh, shoot. The work that, you know, the work that the work that he had finished that day was the work that is felt every day now unto us. Um, I asked myself some questions. Um, one of the questions that I, I began to think about 
is a lot of people say when you hear when you hear people preaching on the cross, a lot of people say, um, do you think that you could have done that what Christ did? Do you think that you could have hung up on that cross and died for a world for a world? I don't think that's the question that we need to ask, because I think nobody could have done that. I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is would you have even showed up that day? Would you even showed up that day? We can't ask ourselves the question, would you die on the cross? But we cannot ask ourselves the question, would we even show up to the crucifixion? Would we have been so scared that somebody would have saw us and, and uh, united us to Christ? Or would we have been like John, would we have been like Mary, who showed up and were weeping at the feet of the cross? Would we have showed up that day? Do we cherish the cross? Do we cherish the work that Christ did there? Do we thank Him for it? Do we pray about it? Pray to ask God to give us that desire. The rest of the week is what Bert's going to talk about on Wednesday. The work of the cross of Christ. He's going to kind of go a little different way, but this is kind of what I want you to think about. Between now and then, think about that. Think about the work that Christ did on the cross. Think about if you cherish it. And, uh, and come back Wednesday.